Hey there. Welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are going to be talking to acclaimed chef Gregory Gourdet about his early battles with addiction and what it's like now to be a chef who is also sober. Also, what it's like to compete on Bravo's Top Chef and what it's like to cook for the Oprah Winfrey in her surprisingly understated kitchen. Oh, and also how his uh, Haitian heritage has inspired his latest restaurant undertaking. Then we're going to talk to Julian Saperiti about how he transformed his doctoral research on Asian American history into concerts and albums and films, all under the name No No Boy. Then we're going to hear a song that he actually made using suitcases at an internment camp location. It's some pretty incredible stuff, which you don't want to miss, so stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena Passarello. Hello, Lucas Burbank. How are, are you a Lucas? I don't even know. I'm just a Luke, but I've been getting that question a lot lately. Maybe I was meant to be a Lucas, but, you know, back in the 70s in Humboldt County, they weren't big on that whole formality thing. They just went with Luke. (laughs) They were a monosyllabic. (laughs) Yes, exactly. At that. All right. Are you ready to play a little station location identification examination? Are you kidding? I've been waiting (laughs) for this. So this is where I'm going to tell you about a place where Livewire is on the radio. You got to try to guess the spot that I am talking about. This place has been called the Malibu of the Midwest, and hosted the annual Dairyland Surf Classic from 1988 to 2012, which is the largest lake surfing competition in the world. Okay, lake and dairy, gotta be Wisconsin. Yes. Ding, Uh, ding, ding. Appleton, Wisconsin. It's such a fun place to say. Sheboygan, Wisconsin. It's Sheboygan, Wisconsin, (laughs) where we're on the radio on WSHS in Sheboygan. Uh, Could have given you the follow-up. In 1970, Sheboygan defeated Bucyrus, Ohio, for the title of Bratwurst Capital of the World. Whoa. Now I'm going to be hungry the whole show. And I don't even eat meat anymore. All right. (laughs) Should we get on with the uh, live wiring this week? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX. It's Livewire! This week, 
chef and cookbook author Gregory Gorday. I really wanted to create something that if you didn't know who I was, the book would be helpful. And it really had to start with how I got healthy and, and that really was because of me getting sober. With music from No No Boy. I don't know, I have kind of two missions, like bringing those sounds into the music, but also putting sound back into history because it's so often muted, you know what I mean? And our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone for tuning in from all across the country, including beautiful Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Sheboygan. We uh, asked the listeners a question this week in honor of Gregory Gorday's appearance. He's a phenomenal chef. We asked uh, folks to tell us their most surprising cooking hack, and we're going to read some of those answers coming up in just a bit. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is, in fact, good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news you heard all week? Illuminating science news. Ooh, with an emphasis on illuminating. I learned about a French startup company called Glowy, which wants to use bioluminescence in place of electric light to provide things like street light and ambient light to communities around the planet. Bioluminescence, which are those organisms that live in like the oceans and just kick off that amazing natural, I guess, light. Yeah, it's a quality that fireflies have. Um, the okay. little thing at the end of an anglerfish is bioluminescent, but there's also th- like marine algae. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that like 76% of all deep sea creatures uh, possess some form of bioluminescence. But the specific bioluminescence that they've been experimenting with in this town called Rambouillet, France, which is like 30 minutes south of Paris is an algae that grows off of the French coast. And they put it in a tube, like a long tube that's basically like an aquarium. And they feed it and keep it healthy. And then this blue glow illuminates the room. And and the room where they first tested it, it was a one of those recovery areas for when you get your COVID vaccine. You know, where you have to wait a little bit. Yeah, I waited in a, I mean, no offense, but an extremely soul-crushing like high school gymnasium. So yeah, if there had totally. been some bioluminescence in there, it would have changed up the whole vibe. Yeah, and um, the the bioluminescent room is just the beginning. This town, Rambouillet, France, is going to put some more uh, bioluminescent tubes in one of its town squares. And they the company is working with 40 cities in France and three other European Union countries using a million dollars in funding to figure out what else they can do. There's some problems right now that they're still trying to figure out, like, how do you change turn the, the light off? No, they know how to turn the light off. What? This is amazing. So there's a steady stream of oxygen that can flow through the tubes and nourish it, and then they just turn off the oxygen, and then the lights go out. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah. It's, I think we're sort of on the ground floor of this, but I just love how out of the box it is and how non-electric power, no dinosaurs were used in right? the making of this cool ambient light. That is amazing. Can we call, do we describe those organisms as animals? Because I've got animals in the news for my best news, talking about loons 
in Michigan, Elena. The That's right. It's like <laughs> nice on Golden Pond reference. I there. know. There's like only, only a certain part of our listening audience will have any idea what that means. <laughs> My best news story comes from Sini, Michigan. How do I know it's pronounced Sini, Michigan, Elena? Because you called the Tim Hortons. They don't have a Tim Hortons, but they do have the Sini Party Store. <laughs> just called on Church Street. Got the pronunciation from someone. Uh, the world's two oldest known common loons have both shown up in Sini, Michigan, again at the Sini National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, one of them is named ABJ, which stands for Adult Banded Juvenile, because ABJ was born at the refuge 35 years ago. Uh, and then the other one is named Faye. They are male and female loons. This is the 26th year that these two common loons, ABJ and Faye, have come to this particular refuge and gotten together and made it. This year, if they hook up, it will be year 26 that they have made it, making them uh, both two of the oldest common loons that we know about in America or maybe the world, and certainly the, the two longest kind of continually pairing up pair of common loons. I thought you were going to say the friskiest. <laughs> well, I mean, clearly there's still some passion in the relationship. That's 26 right. years later, they're still, uh, they're still finding each other. So they're both at the wildlife reserve right now. They are not currently, like they haven't made their way to each other, according to the oh, folks that cool. are like watching them. But they think that it's just a matter of time before they figure out where each other where they're at because they've been finding each other for all of these years. It turns out common loons do not mate for life, but researchers have found that if two loons do successfully hatch chicks together, they are more likely to pair up again the following year. Smart. So this has just apparently been working very well for ABJ and Faye. And so this year, I mean, all, all signs point towards another great summer for these two. And a chance, Elena, for me to show my one and only cool party trick, which is my loon call that I oh, can do no. with my hands. <laughs> I saw you start moving your hands. I was like, uh-oh, I know what's limber. coming. Yeah, you're doing some stretches. You know how kind of, it can be stressful <laughs> to try to whistle on command? Yeah. Um, do anything like this. Okay, here we go. Ready? Right? That, that sounded like a spaghetti western. I learned that when I was a kid at Loon Lake over in far, far eastern Washington. Beautiful. Well done. I cannot believe that these loons are so much better at making relationships work than I am. It's incredible. That's like 15 marriages of time for me that these loons have been together. You just got to work on your loon call. Maybe that's the key. That's right. If you got that's a stronger right. I've been loon call. Up, I've been barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> anyway, loons in love. That's the best news that I saw this week. Hey, if you want to get more good news in your life, we have an entire Livewire podcast called The Best News Podcast, which we put out each week, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. He's a two-time finalist on Bravo's Top Chef. He's a James Beard Award nominee, and he's also the best-selling author of Everyone's Table, Global Recipes for Modern Health, and he's Oprah's personal go-to chef for all things Haitian cuisine-related. He's Gregory Gorday, and we just talked to him earlier this month at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, Oregon. Take a listen.
Gregory Gorday, welcome to Livewire. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. It's great to see you. Um, congratulations on all the stuff that you've been up to. Been on Top Chef a bunch. You've been doing all kinds of interesting things, including putting out this cookbook, uh, Everyone's Table, Global Recipes for Modern Health. I, I was really struck by how beautiful the book is and how interesting the recipes are, but also by the beginning of the book, which talks a lot about your journey to sobriety. Indeed. I think it's the first thing in the book. Why it did is. you start there? Uh, I really wanted to create something that would be helpful for people because a lot of people know me as a chef and I'm on TV and I do these competition shows and I've been in town for about 15 years, but like health is extremely important to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I really wanted to create something that if you didn't know who I was, if you had never seen me on TV, the book would be helpful. And it really had to start with how I got healthy and my journey to health and, and that really was because of me getting sober. And I got sober in Portland 13 years ago, and oh, my life completely changed. So, so yeah, so yeah, I, I rolled up here about 14 years ago. It was a hot mess, <laughs> and then I met some folks who were in AA, and it was like the end of a seven-year battle with drugs and alcohol. I'd left New York, that's where I'm from, and I was in rehab. I'd moved to California. I'd gotten car accidents, arrests, you know, uh, more therapy, and nothing stuck. And then I finally made it to Portland, and I was just meant to move here. And, you know, I met people in AA. Yeah, and my life completely changed. And uh, I just felt I had to begin the book with that story. Um, and if you haven't read the book, um, it starts with the story of me drinking for 12 hours in San Diego and then falling asleep at the wheel and uh, totaling a car after it flipped in the air um, and continuing to party for a year and a half after that. <laughs> um, but soon after, I, I got healthy and, and, and here I am. And um, I just wanted to share that beginning because I think it's so important. Um, I think we find change in our lives in so many different areas. You know, what instigate change in our lives? Sometimes it happens immediately. Sometimes it doesn't even happen. Like that was a huge, it could have been a huge turning point in my life. Mm -hmm. How many people, you know, are in a near death car accident and they're like, God saved me or my higher power saved me or whoever is out there saved me. Um, and I just like kept partying, you know? So I, it, it took being far from that situation and looking back and being like, that was a moment in my life I could have lost it all. So I felt it was really important to start the book with that. It's interesting because uh, kitchen culture, you know, professional cooking is so high pressure when it's happening that I know that there's has been historically a real culture around a lot of drug and alcohol use and abuse. I know this because I once uh, moderated an event with Tony Bourdain okay. in, yeah. on a Saturday night in Seattle, and I thought, oh, these will be a bunch of fancy types there, and it was like people were swinging from the rafters. <laughs> it was the one night everyone who cooked in Seattle managed to get okay. off, okay. and it was wild. That being said, I also know a lot of people who are sober now who cook because I also feel like for a lot of people, it's not sustainable. Do you feel like no. that's also a movement that's happening is yeah. sober people in kitchens and, and helping other folks with sobriety? Indeed. I mean, I think it's it's odd because I think the restaurant is the one place where you're rewarded for doing your job with alcohol, like as in a shift drink. You know, what other profession? I mean, you leave, you go to the bar. You don't start drinking at work at a lot of places, you know? So, like, that's one thing. But for me, I was a victim of New York City and cooking in a very fancy kitchen. It's like Jean-Georges. He had mm -hmm. three mission stars at some point he lost a star but uh <laughs> but Wait, he, like, <laughs> he blurbed this book are you really gonna put him out uh, on the front street he's a great mentor you know but uh it was a very high pressure situation and, and new york 
nothing closes in New York. And, you know, mm -hmm. here I'm a young cook. I work at this great restaurant and like all my friends work at clubs and, you know, you just get caught up. So it's like a vicious cycle, you know, and I have a very addictive personality. Like I'm an overachiever, like I overwork, like, so like all these things about my personality, like completely make me an addict, you know? So, <laughs> but I think it is very prevalent because, you know, we work 12 hours a day just to keep the restaurant open. It's hard to work less, you know, obviously we're trying to shift with how culture is today. We're realizing that these systems are not effective. Um, they don't promote life balance, you know? Mm -hmm. We actually have a group called Ben's Friends and it's a national chapter and it's just all sober folks, people trying to get sober strictly in the food and beverage industry wow. um, because we need to create a space for ourselves because we're bartenders, we're sommeliers, we're winemakers, we're chefs. We are surrounded by alcohol all the time. Um, maybe if you're in an A or in another group, you might get questioned about why are you still in this profession, but mm -hmm. for us, it's all we do. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I want to, on the subject of your being a high achiever, I want to talk about this cookbook when we come back from the break and also this new restaurant you're opening. So uh, let's do that in a moment. We're talking to Chef Gregory Gorday. This is Livewire Radio. Coming back in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We're talking to Chef Gregory Gorday. His cookbook is Everyone's Table, Global Recipes for Modern Health. I know that uh, the food writer Michael Pollan has like this mantra, right? It's like um, eat food, mostly plants, not too much of it or whatever. Do you, Gregory Gorday, have a sort of a food <laughs> mantra that you say in your mind or like an organizing principle for like the kind of food you want to make, the kind of stuff you want to champion? Yeah, for me, I definitely see food as two things. I see it as nourishment and I see it as culture. So for me... Everything I put in my body, well, not everything, but let's be realistic, but I, 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 like to, I like to focus on whole foods 100%, and I love, love, love learning about the culture behind ingredients, 
Uh, I've studied so many different types of cuisines. I've worked in so many different types of restaurants. Currently, I'm tapping into my own heritage to open up my restaurant, Khan. But I just love learning about, you know, why there's, you know, ginger and jerk because of Chinese immigrants in Jamaica. Mm. Um, you know, why there's curry in, in Africa. Um, you know, all these kind of ingredients and spices that we think belong to one place, but how they got to another place. I think it's so fascinating and it's, it's truly endless. So for me, those are the two things I focus on when I think about food. Um, the last time we had you on the show, I think you were maybe right off of being on Top Chef the first time. Yes, yes. And then since then, you've uh, been on it more. You, they just did the season in Portland, and you were on it like a ton, mm. kind of as the ambassador for Portland. <laughs> it took a lot of work to get Top Chef to come to Portland. Really? You don't really? know how many meetings were you lobbying we had behind for that? the scenes. Yes, absolutely. I didn't realize that. Yeah, wow. Me, Travel Portland, we're just like, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, good job. We got it. We got it. Travel Oregon. Yeah, we finally got them to come here, and then it was a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> That's Portland's luck, I, I think, no, right? I mean, like, literally, like, it was the fires. It was the pandemic. We were all downtown, so there was the protest. And then we finally got to an episode where we could shoot at Mount Hood and go to the orchards. And uh -huh. I was like, this is Oregon. Like, it was like a beautiful, perfect day. And like we're harvesting apples and pears. I'm like, come on, it's great here. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we do. <laughs> I'm wondering about the times when you've actually been competing on that show because I have heard that it is an unbelievable grind for the chefs. Because what we don't realize as the viewers, as we're watching like every week, yeah. hey, what's the new you're challenge? 45 like, minutes of 12 hours a day. You're doing wow. that back to yeah. back to back to back, right? Yeah, yeah. My first season, we would film for six days straight and then have one day off. And then, of course, times change. You can't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so now we film uh, one episode, which takes two days, and then always have a day off. But it's a 12 to 15 hour day, um, wow. for sure, to get condensed into 45 minutes of TV. For yeah. the, I don't know, for folks that maybe don't watch Top Chef, first of all, what are you doing with your life? But, <laughs> but there's this thing called the Quick Fire Challenge, which is timed and kind of like the, you know, Padma Lakshmi sort of throws out an idea, like combine this with this or, or make something that reminds us of this. And then you, if this is one of the years you're competing, Gregory, just have to run in a direction and start just like grabbing ingredients. How does everyone have an idea in their head so fast on the show? You have to. I mean, I think... I think some people don't like competition cooking because they don't think it's like realistic or like cooking shouldn't be competition. It should be collaborative and like all these things. But for me, I think it's a very personal thing because you can't find yourself in that situation. You're never going to be like, I'm going to just run to my pantry and make a dish in 15 minutes, you know, unless you're like really late for something. And like, I, I'm really late for stuff all the time. So, like, But, you know, it's just like not this realistic thing that you can put yourself through and like this like gauntlet kind of like challenging way of like how quickly can you think on your toes? You know, how delicious can you make something with very limited resources? How many courses can you execute out of just shopping at like a place like Whole Foods, like with like limited ingredients, nothing specialty? Um, it's just a cool way to challenge yourself, you know? And it's like the adrenaline rush is very addictive. And we've heard you do well with that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I love it. Like my heart's beating so fast. I think I'm going to puke, but like, you know, but then like getting pop on to say like all the great feedback and, you know, you get to live another day. It's like really fun. <laughs> it's really fun. I, um, I was watching like 
Oprah on Instagram. Okay, okay. And she's like, got Gail there. And it's like these students from her school and everyone's like about to eat this amazing meal. And you were the person who made the yeah. meal. Yeah. How did that happen? And what well, was that like for you? First of all, Oprah ain't never coming to Portland. I'll tell you that. Oh. She, she, she thinks it's so weird here. She <laughs> does? Yeah. It's really funny. Sometimes it's a hard pitch. I got to tell you guys. <laughs> But, oh, no, so uh, Oprah has a, of course, Oprah has a chef, like, all the time, um, and the chef couple, they go on vacation for the holidays and during the summer, and she brings other chefs in to, to cook for her family. So my friend Maylin uh, has been cooking for her for about six, seven years, so she has asked me to c- come cook with Oprah for so long, like the whole time, like seven years we've been friends. And I've never been able to go because I've always been working at the restaurant because um, it's the holidays or the summer to our two busy seasons. So I was finally able to go. Um, and yeah, we had Haitian night. We all got to do different theme nights and I got to make Haitian food for Oprah for the first time. Wow. And she really loved it. You know, it was, it was a very, very special because, you know, Haiti gets such a bad rap in media. That's why I think it's so important. That's, that's why I'm so excited to bring Khan to Portland mm-hmm. as like probably the premier Haitian restaurant in the country. Um, The Haitian community was so like lit over that whole thing. (laughs) Like it literally made that Oprah post, like Oprah like videotaping me, like explaining the menu and talking about all these traditional Haitian dishes. Like that made it to Haiti even before I told my parents about it. You know, like it made it to Haiti. It made it to Canada. Like it was like- They must have been so proud. No, I mean, but like we get, the Haitian community gets so much negative press, you know? And for me, like I'm Haitian American. I was born in this country, but like I went to school in Haiti for a year when I was younger. We'd have vacationed all the time. All the memories I have of Haiti are like the beach and amazing food and family Mm. and all these amazing things. And like that is what I know Haiti to be to me. Mm -hmm. So I want to share that with the world. So when we have a positive spin on Haiti in any type of media, it's really important for our culture. Um, So I think everyone's like super happy about that. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 We're talking to Gregory Gourdet about uh, his new cookbook, Everyone's Table. I was just noticing what a really like beautiful kind of piece of art this is with the photography Thank you so much. and the layout. And I, I was wondering if that was something that you were really going for with it. And then I also started to realize that like cookbooks within families are like heirlooms. Mm-hmm. Like they're very durable like cr- across generations if you know someone's mom has a cookbook and then they mm-hmm. give it to them like these are real kind of like artifacts within a family mm-hmm. uh i do have a haitian cookbook that's about 40 years old that my mom gave my sister but she should have just given it to me <laughs> so has your sister it. cooked yeah. for oprah <laughs> um but no i mean you should get that book the back. book was photographed by eva cosmos flores she's a local photographer she's amazing and i just wanted the book to represent so the top 100 superfoods are in the book and if you don't have the book it's it's paleo friendly so it's gluten-free dairy-free soy-free refined sugar-free but it's not a book that talks about what's missing. Um, I explain why all these natural ingredients are better for you and you can choose if you want to use them or not. But all the recipes in there look like normal, delicious, savory, well-seasoned food. The book is technical just enough for the home cook who likes to be adventurous and likes to try a few things. Um, There's definitely things you can make ahead, pickles, marinades, sauces, um, and a few just like low-level chef tricks that I use to incorporate more flavor into food. Um, And it's a combination of being inspired by different cultures all around the world. So there's, there's 14 different categories of food. So I really want it to be something that's to the test of time. Okay. 
a big focus of this book is is healthy eating that doesn't necessarily feel like you're missing out on anything. I know that you, as a, a person who's sober and, and and exercises very regularly, like you you're you're a clean burning machine, Gregory. Gordet. I try. I try. But sometimes I, when, I, but, I completely. But even go off in the, the book, rails. When yeah. you, okay, I want to talk about that because in the book when you talk about like when you slip up, it's like you're eating like a handmade tortilla <laughs> in de Efe with your friends no, or like some buttered I, I, rice, like. <laughs> Come on, you're from New York. Like White Castle, do you have anything that's no, like just no, bad no, that don't. you that you like give? Like I really you don't. Into? Wow, no pop tarts. No, uh, <laughs> I'm following you after the show. Snotty, but like, I'm just like, <laughs> I, I just no. okay. What then? What is the kind of stuff that you will occasionally like? I mean, I, I have a huge sweet tooth. Like okay. it's like bad. Like I'll get like, I ordered a. A whole carrot cake from Goldbelly because <laughs> we might do Goldbelly for the restaurant, uh-huh. and it was uh, it came from down south, and like I literally ate like almost half of it in one sitting by myself. Okay, like like I'm not kidding. Thank you for giving us that, Gregory Gorday. <laughs> like, we needed that. Yeah. <laughs> this is Livewire, by the way. We're talking to Chef Gregory Gorday. Um, this is the part of the show now where we uh, we like to try to give our listeners some practical advice uh, that they can use in their real lives, and since. Um, a lot of us are kind of returning to the world of eating in restaurants and maybe even nicer restaurants and putting behind the uh, sitting on the uh, couch and eating frozen pizza in our pajamas. I have no plans to stop that, by the way. I don't know who wrote this. Um, we thought, though, for some of the people that are going to go back out to restaurants, maybe we could help them brush up on restaurant etiquette. And because you are uh, a restaurateur or soon to be one of your own place, we thought maybe you could answer some questions along those lines. So here... Uh, on this desk, we have an actual physical jar. Okay. It's got five questions in it. We call it the jar of truth. Okay. <laughs> Here's how this is going to work. Uh, Gregory, uh, we'll have you pick a question at random, and then Elena Passarella will read it to you, and then we'd okay. like to get your honest, informed answer oh. as somebody who has spent many, many, many hours in restaurants. Okay, Gregory. If your credit card is declined at a restaurant... Oh, boy. Can you actually pay for your meal by washing the dishes? Or is that an urban legend? <laughs> no, there's far too much paperwork to get you signed up. <laughs> so that's never happened in all of your years working ah. in restaurants. No one's ever been like paraded into the kitchen with their head hung low like, we gotta do this. No, no, sorry. <laughs> That was my backup plan. I mean, people offer people offer all the time. I'll help you. I'll wash dishes. It's like oh, I have a steward. I, you know, like <laughs> they had they need a job. Like they got to work for their money. What about that thing? Isn't there a restaurant in, in like one of the islands off of Venice where the wall is covered with like Picasso drawings and Matisse drawings because they wanted risotto but they couldn't pay for it? Could, oh wow! Could, could I get a free dinner if I like was really good at doodles? Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't think you have to wash dishes, but we can definitely work something out. Okay. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Uh, care to uh, draw another question from yeah, the jar of truth? These are good. <laughs> All right. Okay. What is the best thing to use to prop up a wobbly table leg? Oh, like a matchbook or a sugar packet oh, or a fork? God. Oh, or... my God. Okay, so my best friend is my project manager, and we dine all the time and like a wobbly table drives her insane. <laughs> so we will not have any wobbly tables at the restaurant. Uh, but yes, but yes, just like a little folded, folded napkin is great. Folded, folded napkin. napkin. Yeah, That's folded what napkin. your professional opinion. Hmm. Is it bad form for the customers 
to do it? Should they ask the server or because I'll be no, down there with a fork, like wedging it upside definitely down? Definitely tell the server. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's not being extra as a customer. No, I mean there are things like a wobbly table that are the, the details matter. Hmm. Okay. The details matter. I but mean, you, no, no, no. I, I mean, like, come on. We need to give everyone like a break. It's we're coming out of a pandemic, mm -hmm. but. If you come to Con, there's a wobbly table. You tell me. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get a free meal. Right? <laughs> Gregory Gorday, everyone. Special thanks this episode to Lynn Butkiss of Portland, Oregon, and Samia Dilsey of Seattle, Washington. Lynn and Samia are part of the Livewire member community and are generously supporting the show with a donation each month, which is really a big deal to us because it's how we get to keep doing this each week. So thank you once again to Lynn and Samia for keeping Livewire going. You're tuned in to Livewire. Of course, each week we like to ask our listeners a question. Uh, because we are talking food this week on the show with Gregory Gorday, we wanted to ask the listeners, tell us your most surprising cooking hack. Folks sent those responses in. Elena has been collecting them up. What are you seeing? There's a lot of banana tips in, in this bunch. Like as in they strike you as bananas or they're about dealing with a banana? <laughs> the, the, the latter. Okay. <laughs> First one from Tracy. Tracy says, when you are making banana bread, squeeze the bananas before you peel them to soften them up for mashing, which I didn't know that, that it was that hard to mash up an unsclosed banana. Like, they seem pretty easy. That's why you give them to babies. My mom used to make lots of banana bread when I was a kid. So when the bananas would turn brown or black, mm -hmm. then she would freeze them. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, she'd pull them out of the freezer when it was time to make banana bread, but they would just be encrusted in ice because we had this very old, one of those weird <laughs> freezers that was always trying to like yeah. over-frost itself. So she loved doing this because it would help her get out some of her sort of aggression, but in a safe way. She would throw the bananas against the floor like they'd be in a bag just to break up the ice. And she used to have this bit. She would just go, I can't take it anymore. And just like throw this block of frozen bananas into the floor of our little rental house. Um, and uh, we had fun back in those days. Anyway, that's my memory of banana bread. Did your mom ever put bananas in coleslaw? No. Is that a thing? Scott, according to Scott, who wrote in, adding bananas to coleslaw is a cooking hack. Wow. <laughs> I don't know, The thing know, about man. coleslaw is it sort of feels like a catch-all to me because depending on where you're at in the country, the coleslaw could have a lot of mayo going on. That's one kind of flavor. It could also have uh, no mayo, kind of more, mm -hmm. you know, and with a little bit of like oil being used. I wonder what kind of coleslaw... <laughs> can sustain a banana <laughs> the best. Sounds like none of them to me, but I don't know. I'm not convinced. All right, another uh, cooking hack that one of our listeners has. This one is up my alley. It's from Eric, who says, if your meat didn't turn out right, add salsa, cheese, sour cream, and wrap it in a tortilla, and it'll be good. <laughs> it, just, like, it doesn't matter what, and probably meatless products too could work, but you just, you just add all the other things that make a burrito to them, 
and just go with God. <laughs> if you're cooking some meat and it doesn't turn out, you take the meat out and then you wrap it all up and then you eat your burrito, right? Is that basically the advice there? I mean, I think the meat is still in there, but I think it's got so many friends at the party that uh-huh. you can't really recognize it anymore. Uh, one more cooking hack from one of our listeners. Oh, uh, this one's my favorite one from Kelly, whose cooking hack is marry someone who's a great cook. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I did. Score. Yes. My pants Absolutely. never fit, but I don't ever have to cook. <laughs> <laughs> that is a hunt. And also mixologist in your case. So it's like, yeah. Like yeah. You got almost all of the bases covered when it comes to uh, indulgence. All right. Thank you to everyone who sent in those um, semi helpful cooking hacks. Uh, you're listening to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello right over there. Our musical guest this week is a songwriter and scholar born in. Nashville, Tennessee. His multimedia project, No No Boy, has transformed his doctoral research in Asian American history into concerts and albums and films. Uh, His latest part of that project is titled 1975. It's an album. And it was released through Smithsonian Folkways. NPR called it one of the most insurgent pieces of music you'll ever hear. And if you stick around for the rest of this interview and performance, you'll understand why they said that. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Julian Saperiti, also known as No-No Boy, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater earlier this month. Hello. Hi, Julian. Welcome to the show. It's so much better to see you not through a computer screen. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It is really exciting to all be kind of in the same place. Did I read correctly that this, uh, the 1975 album, is literally part of your dissertation at Brown? Uh, You say Brown with such emphasis. (laughs) I say it with such envy. Where did you go to college? North Seattle Community College. You got a microphone? The Brown of Community College. You got a microphone and a nice haircut. I think (laughs) you did pretty good. (laughs) Uh, yeah, yeah. So I literally just turned in a draft of my um, completed dissertation, and I wanted to make a point to say, isn't it time that we start, uh, I don't know, turning this incredible research we spend years doing into more public-facing work? So chapter four is just a vinyl record. It's so wow. cool. Yeah. What was the response from your advisors? Yeah, they're pretty down. Uh, I do a lot of um, residencies at colleges across the country at the invitation of mostly younger scholars, junior scholars, who are like, some of my advisees could maybe do some more creative work, documentary filmmaking, podcasts, maybe not singing. I mean, that's like, I have training in that. I don't advise most (laughs) PhDs to just start singing their dissertation. Um, That wouldn't be their truth. I don't think it would be their truth. But you know, it isn't anyone's truth is the dissertation form as currently composed. Like, mm-hmm. it's just not a natural way to write. It's very laborious and, and bogged down in citation. And, and all the coursework I have appreciated. Like, I came, kind of fell ass backwards into academia from being an indie rock musician for like 10 years of my life. And it was that knowledge from like touring and the road. Mm. That was a whole kind of methodology, which I then brought and meshed with my coursework. And I read all the books got through all the articles, did all the research, but when it came time to share it, I just thought, man, some of these stories to me are so important, uh, especially in the times we're living in. Is We're living through echoes of a lot of the, I don't know, like shattered empires and, 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 and detention and camps that I study and how people got through those, those times, dealt with hardship and um, uh, racism and things that they had to overcome. So I really just wanted to share this with more folks and just the three people on my dissertation committee who are all super supportive, but 
um, I don't know. Yeah, like I said, like hmm. let's let's sing. We can probably get some more people if we sing a song about it. Then that's going to change your defense too, right? Like, is there just going to be a listening party in the middle of it? Or? Yeah, well, they've all they. I mean, early on. So what happened was, I think second year, I was at one of those big national conferences. Like I submitted an actual paper about this really important story to me, uh, this jazz band, the Georgiegawa Orchestra, that formed uh, in a concentration camp, Japanese American internment camp, in Wyoming, where I had been living. Hmm. And I, I went up there and I saw this picture of this jazz band. And I'd gone to a jazz college. I went to Berkeley College of Music, took four jazz history courses, never learned about any folks who looked like me. Uh, Asian-American folks, and here was a 16-piece big band behind barbed wire who had, uh, instead of taking a suitcase full of clothes when the government said take only what you can carry during World War II when 120,000 Japanese-Americans were incarcerated, these idiots took trombones and trumpets. <laughs> and I never saw myself before <laughs> till I saw that picture. Just like, wow. you know, these, these uh, black-haired uh, musicians um, all playing pop music and I wanted to tell that history, and I remember being at this this conference, this academic conference in some Hilton ballroom, <laughs> you know, some some chandeliered ballroom where we're all arguing about the oppression of marginalized people or eating <laughs> finger <laughs> foods and stuff like that. And I was looking out at the audience, and there was maybe 20 folks there, which is a pretty good crowd for an academic panel. Mm-hmm. Elena knows. Yeah, yeah, that's like a like a Madison Square Garden. Of people academic. might start doing the wave. Yeah, 20 people. It was rowdy. I tell you what, at 10 a.m. at the Hilton in D.C. <laughs> but you know, this was right 2016, right? Like I think a week, the week Trump got elected. Wow. And um, yeah, so I was real ratcheted up. Everyone was. I think I was in my first or second year of grad school, and I was presenting this this, this story about uh, a band that formed in the Japanese-American incarceration, and one of Trump's advisors had um, sort of, in reference to the Muslim ban, used Japanese internment as precedent. Huh. Not like a totally bad thing. Yeah. And, I was, and I didn't learn about this growing up in Tennessee. But also in Wyoming, when I was teaching uh, college and high school kids, a lot of folks that would come in their freshman year to UW had never even heard about Heart Mountain or didn't really know the history. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's only, it's not an Asian American history, it's not a Japanese American history, it's a Wyoming history that's happened on this ground, you know, the same uh, ground where uh, Native folks were removed and put into reservations up in the Wind Rivers and um, the same ground where in 1885 the Chinese were massacred in Rock Springs and one of the worst, uh, worst kind of incidents of that kind in American history. And I just wanted to share these stories. And the, the dissertation form, the academic prose form, as currently constituted, was not going to cut it because when I was looking out at those 20 academics who were wonderful people, who I stand on the shoulders of, I was thinking, man, when I was a singer, I used to play for a room of 100 people, 200 people a night. And now I actually got something to say. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. You're listening to a conversation that we recorded with Julian Saperiti, also known as No-No Boy, right here on Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarella. We've got to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because we'll be right back with much more, including a live musical performance from No-No Boy uh, that is really quite something. So stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends. 
like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're listening uh, to a conversation we recorded with artist and scholar Julian Sapparidi about his multimedia project, Nono Boy, which started out as his doctoral research on Asian American history. Take a listen to this. It's, it's so interesting to me the way that you actually generated a lot of the sound, a lot of the kind of audio that we hear and along with the singing and, and you know, field recorders and things like that. How did you like make this sound? Because that's also important to the story. Yeah, so not only am I writing about on the album that jazz band that formed at Heart Mountain, Wyoming, or you know, just sort of daily small stories of uh, early Chinese miners or my own kind of family history of uh, Vietnamese refugees coming to France or the US. Place is so important to me. I wanted to go to these places and not only kind of put music back into some of these spaces, the, the actual repertoire that the Georgie Gawa Orchestra played on the ground where they actually played it, but I also wanted to capture the sounds of those spaces themselves and see if I could incorporate that into the recordings somehow. Mm. Um, so for instance, the song we're going to do tonight, uh, me and my partner Amelia is going to join me on stage in a second, it's called Tell Hanoi I Love Her, kind of deals with the really interesting Vietnamese American community we got. How about a third of us, 40% of us are Trump voters. You know, there's a big South Vietnamese flag on the January 6th uh, siege on the Capitol. Wow. You know, and that's something that I think in the discourses of Asian American uh, studies right now, we don't talk about so much, but I come from the middle of the country. I come from Tennessee, I come from Wyoming. This project was in large part to be able to sit down with those folks and have those conversations. So part of this is wanting to take those sounds, not only sing about the history, but have incorporate those sounds. So for instance, in this tune, what you're gonna hear in the backing track for like this, You're hearing a kick drum that was made out of luggage from the Japanese internment camp sourced from the Japanese American Museum here in Portland. Wow. Some of that scraping uh, and the sort of like snare drum click and the hi-hat, that's barbed wire from a detention center down in Dilly, Texas, where they're holding women and children today. And you're also hearing sounds of internment camp barracks. We add on to that sound of uh, my favorite instrument, the monochord, uh, Dan Bao, which I recorded in Vietnam. Just one note, but just sort of like using this sampler that no one on the radio could see that I'm holding. Uh, you're able to, you know, pitch it and play different chords and, and create music out of it. And there's that little ding yeah. on the two and the four. What's sounds that? Like, sounds like an organ, but it's actually a woman named Chicky White. Her voice is just like a small little granulation of a song that she sang for me. And she uh, lived in Vancouver, Washington for a long time. She was from Seattle originally. She was put into the camp that a lot of uh, Oregonians and folks from Washington were put into, Minidoka, Idaho, during World War II. She was actually one of the jazz singers in that camp. Wow. So I got to interview her, sit down, and ask, would you sing me a little bit of a song? 
So I, I try to take that with me. So you would never know it. It would just sound like kind of a out-of-tune band. <laughs> but for me, it means a lot. When I'm in the recording studio or when I'm singing live to you folks, singing a song about you know, my very mixed-up Asian-American heritage that we're about to get into, but having the backing tracks of all of this historical place behind me, I don't know, I have kind of two missions, like bringing those sounds into the music, but also putting sound back into history, because it's so often muted, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's, uh, you, you can quote the Gettysburg Address, but no one talks about who was coughing in the crowd. <laughs> no one talks about the, the timbre and tone of Lincoln's voice or the, the wind, right? Yeah. And that's so important. The noise in this theater, the guy who just coughed right now. Yeah. Our breaths, the laughter. This is what makes something human and real and gets at the, the quotidian, the day to day. And that's the part of history I'm really interested in. So, yeah. Wow. That's what mm -hmm. I'm up to, man. That makes sense. I want to hear it yeah. in full yeah. practice. We also want to want to welcome Amelia Halverson, who is going to be performing along with uh, Julian. Amelia Halverson, everyone. So, can you remind us what what song we're going to hear? We're going to do a number called "Tell Hanoi I Love Her." It's uh, a lot of us who had to leave Vietnam in '75 or after when the communists took over. There's a lot of grudges left, and. Uh, I understand that from those people. Never had to live through a war, and, and, and God help me, I hope I never do. Hope none of y'all ever do. But for those who did, it's hard to criticize some of those um, asinine politics from my perspective. Uh, and it's just about making peace with a past that might be impossible to do that with, but it's, it's better off for the trying. All right, this is No No Boy here on Livewire. Southern with two civil wars A fool to think that this place could ever be yours The in-between, that's where we must explore Tell Hanoi I love her Jenny's mother in the nail salon Bedazzled star, spangled t-shirt, tiger mom Saw the flag on my hat, told me to take it off Tell Hanoi I love her I keep no grudge against some old world kin Not letting go, now that's the Bodhisattva sin I named my Chrysler after Ho Chi Minh Tell Hanoi I love her I got an auntie, old but man alive Last election cast a ballot for 45 If I'd seen what she's seen, I might see her side Tell Hanoi I love her I dream of junk so to sail away Wash your feet on a beach in Halong Bay My mother said once that's where dragons lay Tell Hanoi I love her Ooh. 
we bleed as cheap as our enemy And we die just as needlessly Once I thought there was just one of me Tell Hanoi I love her Fumble with numbers I just wanna sing There's nothing sadder than some cook with an American dream Sometimes I think the most communist things Tell Hanoi I love her Tell Hanoi I love her That was No No Boy right here on Livewire. The album 1975 is available now via Smithsonian Folkways. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's episode. Uh, We're going to be celebrating Mother's Day and sharing some incredible and and pretty moving conversations that we've had with guests regarding their moms. We're going to talk to Michelle Zahner, who you might know as the musician Japanese Breakfast. She also wrote this uh, very highly acclaimed memoir. It's called Crying in H Mart. talks about food and her late mother and how they really connected over cooking. Then Chiara Alegria Hudes, who co-wrote the In the Heights musical, along with Lin-Manuel Miranda, is going to explain how her Puerto Rican mother's use of English helped shape her Pulitzer Prize winning career. And then soul singer Maria Massa is going to take us home with a song that she wrote about her feelings for her mother, who she was estranged from. So we're going to really try to cover a whole range of maternal experiences next week on the show, and hope you can tune in. That's going to do it for this week's episode of LiveWire. A huge thanks to our guests, Gregory Gorday and No-No Boy, along with Amelia Halverson. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our development and marketing director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko, and our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake, and Viviana Castillo-Serrano is our intern. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we would like to thank members Lynn Butkiss of Portland, Oregon, and Samia Dilsey of Seattle, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read on the program itself. 
Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.